Would you give an artificial intelligence responsibility to write your router configurations? You wouldn't. Not yet. But we're not as far from that as you might think. For example, I gave the OpenAI tool ChatGPT the following prompt. Generate a Cisco router configuration for two routers using OSPF version 2. The first router should be in OSPF area 0. The second router should be in OSPF area 1. Area 1 is a stub area, and the OSPF neighborship should form securely using keys. And the result was was far from perfect, but it wasn't a bad place to start. The AI had learned enough to know what I was asking for, and the config it generated was missing some syntax and some dependencies, plus it had added a few things I didn't ask for, like redistribute static and default information originate, but it is not hard to see how, given the right training on a narrowly scoped data model, the AI could indeed generate robust, usable configs. Our skill as engineers would be in the prompting, knowing what to ask the AI for in order to generate the configuration. And I don't even think this is that far off, considering where JetGPT as a tool is today. I'm Ethan Banks, and joining me is Drew Connery-Murray, and our guests are Ryan Booth and Phil Gervasi, both repeat voices here on Heavy Networking. They are employed by networking vendors you've heard of and have been digging into the state of AI and its usefulness to networkers. So I want to open up this discussion, uh, starting with you, Ryan. Uh, we were chatting about this topic offline because of some a bunch of interesting things that you'd found and some things that you'd posted on LinkedIn about this. So let, let's start here, Ryan. Would you would you give us the lay of the land in AI right now? How how would we get started if we wanted to explore this topic as networkers? Yeah, sure. Um, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is excited to be talking about a, a topic that I've been super interested in for the better part of a year now. Um, so AI's ML's been around for a while. People have been talking about it for quite some time, been using it, leveraging it, this, that, and the other. Um, but all of a sudden over the past three or four months, you can't go on any social media, any news site, anywhere without somebody talking about chat GPT, AI, how it's replacing their jobs, this, that, and the other. Um, so it, it's kind of one of those where chat GPP hit the, hit the market. Um, they opened it up for beta testing for everybody to start playing with. And it's pretty stupid, simple to use. So it, it got a ton of popularity, a ton of people jumped on and started messing with it. And a ton of people started talking about it. Um, and I, I think that's kind of where we're at right now is everybody's seeing it. Everybody's seeing what it can do and everybody's trying to figure out how they can use it for what. Um, from a networking standpoint, that's kind of where I dabbled first in with it um, for networking was, hey, let's get it to build me some Cisco config or some Arista config or now build me config for every vendor of the same stuff, playing with it there. And then, OK, well, let's go a step further and, hey, get it to build me some automation configs, Mansible playbooks or some Terraform modules to actually do something and see what it can do there. And so I, I think... Everywhere that I look, not just in the networking industry, but the the whole um, across the board, I guess is the best way to say it, is everybody is really discovering what we can do here. We see new programs, new projects, new applications dropping on GitHub or launching that, that's basically doing anything under the sun people can think of to do with this, this application. And so a, a lot of people are figuring out what it can do, what it can't do. Um, where we can use it, where we can't, where we got to be safe with it. So we're we're really just in discovery phase right now. 
Now, ChatGPT is a project by Open.ai. So if you go to Open.ai and you start clicking around in, th in there, uh, Open.ai on the, the front page there, you're going to get an image generator where you can put in a prompt and see what kind of images it's going to spit back out at you. Like I, I posted something on Twitter the other day about... Uh, Show me a robot that's flying in the sky, setting fire to the earth above mountains and do it in the style of Monet because we need a little class for this image. And it, it actually came out really well. I mean, not super crisp or anything, but it was, you could kind of see from that prompt where it was. Now, ChatGPT that we've been talking about, Ryan, that is one of the projects here under uh, open.ai. But I just say that to make the point, there's more to what's going on in the uh, this open uh, world, these open source tools of AI than just the chat GPT that I think is of most interest to us today, right? Oh, absolutely. So for for a number of years, I, me personally, I've been trying to figure out a way to get interested and excited and sink my teeth into AI and ML and learn it. Um, a lot of the really deeper topics um, and technologies inside of this realm to me, aren't necessarily interesting at, at just surface value. So it's been hard for me to dig into it. But about a year or so ago, there was a number of projects that, that leveraged the open AI to actually start doing image generation. And that was around the time we started seeing people just constantly throwing up on Twitter and social media, all these AI images they were generating. And for me, that was kind of where I was able to get into it because it, 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 it tapped into my technical side in my technical skill set, but it also tapped into my artistic side and I fell in love with it. And I, that's kind of where I dug into it. And so, yeah, that's, that's where, you know, you, you got everything that comes around the, the image generation. You, you now have chat GTP that is a conversational style interaction um, back and forth and it learns and it, it, it adjusts as you're going. Um, if you provide feedback into it, it adjusts to that. And then there's there's all sorts of text generation as well. And then, you know, other areas too. So yeah, the, the project's pretty robust. Um, OpenAI has been around for quite a while, surprisingly. Um, they, they, got, they got a good project. Now, ChatGPT seems like, eh, on the one hand, it's an interesting project, but, but is, it, is it merely a novelty in your opinion, Ryan? Or is there more going on with it today? More, more use cases that ChatGPT has other than, it's nifty to play with. Um, no, for right now, I, I think there are there are definitely practical use cases for it. Um, I, I don't think they're critical use cases as of yet. And and when I say critical, so you're you're not going to replace your network engineers with Chat GPT. Um, you're not going to tell um, Chat Chat GTP to go out and build some automation scripts to handle you know whatever level of config it is to build for you. It doesn't have that level of accuracy. And, and, and ChatGTP doesn't work as well with code as other models do within the OpenAI infrastructure. So it's one of those where, you know, help me build an email or help me build a slide deck for a, a presentation or I need to send an executive briefing to this team or heck, I need to reply to this Twitter fight going on with, with something appropriate to say, say it for me. You know, it's funny. Like I, that. Yeah, I saw a Twitter thread uh, of somebody who used ChatGPT to write their sort of uh, year-end performance review, self-reflection, self-evaluation, because they hated doing it uh, and felt like it was silly. So they wrote up a prompt for ChatGPT and ChatGPT produced something that, to me, read just like kind of what you'd expect for that kind of thing. Like, because 
I mean, my takeaway so far from chat GPT is that it's pretty good at generating things that sound good, whether or not they are good, they, they, they are convincing. Yeah. I did a similar experiment with, uh, with chat GPT where I gave it a prompt to, uh, I, I want to build a carbon neutral data center. How would I do that? And it spit back to me a, a whole bunch of data points about exactly how I would, how we would accomplish that task. And I had given it that prompt because it was an article that someone had asked me to write. I turned it down because I didn't feel I was expert enough in the topic to know. But in the research that I'd done, all of the points that ChatGPT spit back at me was everything that I'd researched. It did seem to know, you know, at a high level what that was. And the format it gave it to me and the way it gave it to me and the logic and the flow, very readable, very easy to understand. Uh, it was quite, it was, it was impressive, almost frighteningly so. I guess the accuracy thing is, uh, is is yet another question, which maybe drives us into you know another topic here. How is Chat GPT knowledgeable? What does it quote unquote know? Because I, I've thrown a bunch of stuff about it: uh, mental health and rebuilding the carburetor in a '71 Mustang, and give me the popular songs of the last five years in a specific style, and whether or not the world's going to experience a lithium shortage, and should I buy an Apple Watch Ultra or a Garmin Phoenix, Garmin Phoenix 7X, etc. It knew about all of this stuff, or pretended to know about all of this stuff. So how does it how does it know anything? That's a good question. But my question for you is, does it know anything? What we're talking about is using, I think, Ryan, you mentioned in our show notes that it's using predominantly the internet for its data set. So it's synthesizing information that's already out there. Now, there is the argument that that's a parallel to how humans learn anyway, that we have a mediated creativity where we synthesize all the information that's outside of us anyway. We don't create anything ex nihilo. But um, this idea of does it really know about carburetors? Let me give you an example. I can tell, uh, this is not a tech example on purpose, but I can say to my wife, I love you. And she says, great. And then I say to her, or I, I love cookie dough ice cream. And she says, oh, great. Same words. She knew what I meant the first time. And it was different than the second time. Then we can, we can define uh, and then put it out there for uh, the open AI system to, to glean this information. We can define what a metaphor is and what a simile is. And then I can say, honey, I love you as much as the sky is wide and as the ocean is deep. Or I can say, hey, Ethan, I really thought that was an interesting point. Explain. Or I could say, oh, Ethan, I guess that was an interesting point. You want to explain? See, there, there's that nuance there. Does it really know or is it synthesizing masses of information which presupposes that the information is correct, uh, accurate, thorough enough to, to provide new information. I've been delving into ML specifically for the past couple of years, and I've found that the accuracy of the data set is, uh, and, and the divergence of data, the, the volume of data is paramount in getting a reliable, accurate result when I eventually do apply some ML model to avoid spurious correlation or just some kind of whacked out uh, result that, that isn't applicable, you know? Well, Ryan, I think it's fair to say that AI doesn't quote unquote know anything because what's really going on here is it's learning data. That data has been modeled in a particular way and it's spitting back. I think of it as, as, as spitting back patterns. Oh, with this input, the typical output looks something like this uh, based on the model and the training uh, that uh, that was done. Do I have that roughly right from what you understand? 
Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm no expert. Um, I've only been playing with this for a while. Um, and, and I definitely have not dug deep into models myself. So there is probably stuff I talk about that could be inaccurate here. But I, I think what a lot of um, Phil is hinting at and we're getting into right here is, is the, the accuracy of the models built and the dimensions of the data. Um, and, and with the various dimensions, you can get more in depth with how, you know, one specific word or one specific phrase or how something is done, the different dimensions it could have based off reaction or based off of input and stuff like that. Um, so I, I think that's what that's diving into. Um, and I, I think it's an area, especially when you start working with chat GTP, you do start noticing that it, it, it doesn't follow along with what we would as humans in communication do. Um, so, so there is a learning curve there with, with how you get it to spit out information. And, and probably because it's not a human, but that's okay to me. I, I don't, I don't want to say it doesn't, it's not perfect. Therefore let's throw this thing out. That's silly. It's still useful. And I think we're going to get into that because Ryan, you've been, you've been, you and I have been going back and forth about that, uh, how it's still useful even today at this early stage of iteration, but not only that. I think it's fair to say that most people also make mistakes. I mean, I've made mistakes in configurations and there's, there's a, a miscommunication between two individuals and in that interpersonal communication. So I don't know. I don't know if it's really even fair to say I expect absolute perfection at all times. I put in so many different things into chat GPT recently, both tech related and not uh, create a BGP neighbor relationship with these two ASNs, this type of security. Uh, you know, make sure we don't create a train, all, all these different things. And then I hit uh, regenerate several times and it would give me different flavors. Um, and, and so that was an awesome place to start, maybe for sanity checking my own uh, configuration or as a, as, a, as a tool to get me going because I wasn't quite sure or even as a learning tool. I also put in um, some parameters for poetry and I said, give me, uh, you know, such and such a poem, use, poem using these three three different themes. So synthesizing three themes in iambic pentameter, which if you know, is kind of like Shakespearean sonnets and it was total garbage, but it was correct. It was correct. You know, the, it used iambic pentameter, it used all the different parameters I used, but it was garbage, but it was still a really cool place to start. So I think, um, you know, the models that we build, uh, or that we're using, uh, to, to teach the system, to train the models, uh, that's going to be a big key in our, in our output, you know, and then, and then of course, um, how we, we then have that closed loop of feedback where we say that was a bad result and, uh, you know, give me a new one, which I think is something that they're really, you know, probably one of the main reasons that they put it out there for the, for the entire world to use. Right. Yeah. My understanding on how this all works, well, at least with the, what chat GPT is, which is large language models, is that it's basically running statistical probability on what the next word or piece of a word is going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, so it's got a big giant data set and it sort of goes through that and you can, you know, kind of play with this on a basic system with like text or email, you know, uh, fill in the word. Um, you, people start like writing something uh, intending to go one way, but if you just sort of uh, pick what the computer throws at you, you can end up with something completely different. That's because it doesn't really know what you want. Uh, so that's when humans come into the loop uh, when they're training these AR ML systems to, you know, give it, these are examples of what we want, or you put out some output, the machine puts out some output and we grade it and help the computer start to understand. So yes, you're absolutely right that it doesn't know, uh, it needs context and it needs human feedback, expert human feedback. But the other issue here is that humans have their own biases, their own 
limits their own perceptions, which could also color the responses it gets trained on. So we get into a whole other can of worms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is the definition of supervised learning, isn't it? Yeah, training a model and and then reinforce learning that as well. And some of those stuff you brought up, Drew, those 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 are really good points. Um, chat Chat GTP doesn't really expose all the nerd knobs um, that you get within OpenAI. Um, so if you actually go into the OpenAI playground, um, and it's just, you you basically go to openai.org. Um, there's a playground. You sign in with like your Google account or something, or create a new account. And you you get you get free playground access for a limited number of tokens. But inside there, you get to you get to pick different models that you would want to use. And then there's also a bunch of settings that you can fine tune. Um, that's where this stuff really starts getting interesting on what we can and can't do because you have stuff like retries, um, where it's like when when I give when you give me a response, attempt it five different times. And let's pick from those five, which one's the best gonna happen. Um, there's also other settings that I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of them right now, but you can actually have it adjust off of that accuracy, that, that percentage accuracy of what they're responding to, where you say, don't respond with anything that would be less than like 90% accurate, but you can mm. tweak that. And you can start getting more unique style responses if you wanna get more creative. And so you can get into those features and tweak them right now. And the API has those features enabled already. And presumably OpenAI is doing this because we're helping train the models, right? Correct, correct. So another good example um, that, that what a lot of them have done in the, in the art world, um, in the, the AI art. Um, so uh, about six months to a year ago, longer than six months, a, a company, Stable Diffusion, really hit the scene and really pushed a lot of the AI art. Um, and then there was a bunch of different models off of that. Um, well, not models, but a, a bunch of different applications. And so within AI art, how a lot of the workflows go is the, the engine or the model will, will build an image that you ask for. And say you ask, give me an image of a green banana. And so it would build the image. And then there would be a secondary application. And, and the most popular one at the time, and I don't know if it still is, is called Clip. And Clip would turn around around and say, hey, is this image a green banana? And it would, it would look and say, no, it's a yellow banana. So I'd say the banana part is 99% accurate, but the green part is 0% accurate. Mm -hmm. And so what Clip would then turn around and do is it would send that feedback back into OpenAI's model to say, hey, here's what you need to fine tune. Here's what you need to change. Now regenerate a green banana. And then that's how it would go through the process and you would tell it how many iterations to go through of that. And so that's that's how that works there. And OpenAI supports that across the board from what I understand. Um, it's just chat GTP doesn't, doesn't go to that extent. And I feel like there's a joke here for Silicon Valley's hot dog, not a hot dog, but I, I don't know what that is, so we'll move on. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm really interested in when we do more of that unsupervised learning and we do try to glean insight. I mean, when I, working in ML and specifically the niche of networking that I'm in, um, it's all about trying to find causal relationships and strong correlation and outliers and, and you know, applying a particular al uh, algorithm uh, to identify outliers and uh, predict and all, all that kind of stuff, you know, seasonality. Um, and 
so there is kind of an intelligence there where I can ask ChatGPT as a network engineer, why is this not working right? And it's able to go into that data and mine it. Obviously, this presupposes a certain amount of resources and workflows that are pre-built and, and trustworthy, because it does mean we trust the system, right? Um, and it can identify those correlations and say, you know, we, we have a 97% uh, probability or, or confidence level that this is causing this problem over here. That That's really exciting to me. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about today with where chat GPT is. Um, but I feel like that's where we're going. And how cool would that be in networking to be able to not just Google your network or, or use like Alexa of your network and ask it questions like, oh, I forgot what the IP address is of my DNS server to ask it those kind of, uh, uh, you know, deeper questions and uh, that ultimately it doesn't really know. It's just doing math. It's doing exponential smoothing to, you know, do predictive analysis. It's clustering for you to find out what new information is, right? So that's new information, isn't it? You know, we talked about how it doesn't really know anything, but maybe it will. It'll be able to identify a causal relationship that we didn't know about and we didn't even think about because of well, the... That Frankly, yeah. the, fran the fancy math that's going on. That that feels like what would make it distinct from an expert system. If an expert system mm -hmm. could be grossly simplified, simplified as a bunch of if-then-else statements uh, that nest until you come down to the answer, all programmed in with conditions and situations that some expert programmed in there, this goes beyond that because it can, it can find the things that weren't coded in. There was no if-then-else mm -hmm. statement wrote that discovered this causal relationship uh, that was ferreted out through math that feels more right. powerful and more interesting to me uh, it also feels applicable to any data set you know that is an expert system there's a specific knowledge domain that you have to know about to create that system here it feels like if you can model the data that you want the artificial intelligence to know something about, quote unquote, know, in the context that we've been talking about it here in this podcast, which is it doesn't really know anything exactly, it's math. But if you can model that data in that way, you can apply any data set to it and come out with some kind of a useful result, no matter what the knowledge domain is. That feels powerful to me. I I don't know who it was. If Phil, it was you, Ryan. I don't know, but uh, we we got talking about I, Ryan. I think it was you. We were talking about what if you could take the knowledge base from uh, a vendor, let's say, that shows how to build a thing, and then explains in detail exactly how to do that. Plug that into the artificial intelligence engine uh, as a model. Let it learn all that data. Then you would have a definitive resource where you could ask the AI questions uh, about the thing that you want to build and have it give you back an answer that would be contextually uh, understanding exactly what you're asking for and then 100% accurate in the data that it is returning to you. Yeah, and then, then that's exactly it. Um, there's there's three aspects that I know of with, with OpenAPI right now to, to accomplish that. So um, to kind of really break that down, the, the, the initial way is what most people understand is you, you take a brand new model or you take a model of some sorts and you start training it. You're pumping in a ton of data and saying, you know, here's, here's this, here's this, here's this, here's how it correlates to this. And you, you train a model. Um, the thing with that is you hit a stopping point of training the model and you turn around and you ship it. So anything done after that or any adjustments or any changes has to go into another iteration of the model. <clears throat> um, the next step 
is say like with Chad GTP um, or, or, or other models, you, you can actually fine tune those models. And so through, through the API or through the model itself, you can sit down and you can pass in data sets that, that provide fine tuned data. So I can take some documentation that's not publicly exposed, um, some engineering documentation, some, some specs, whatever I want it to be. And I can put it in the per- correct format. I can give it the right meaning. I can assign it to like sim- similar type questions you would ask to get that information. And I can pump it into my model um, through, through fine tuning. And then we can get into those deep level questions and, and improve our accuracy. And so that's, that's fine tuning. And that's a popular way to go, especially with like fine tuning it with documentation and stuff. When you brought up accuracy, Ryan, I'm glad you did too, because I know that's one of the issues that we're seeing. And frankly, it's it seems to be what everybody on social media loves catching, you know, in action. Like, look, it's inaccurate. I'm like, well, whatever. When you ran whatever you were running uh, in your experiments and you got five different results and you saw which one was accurate, were they like wildly different or were there just some subtle differences where we could say they're all generally accurate? What 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 was What was specifically the result when you were experimenting? It depends. I've I've done a lot of these and it yeah. kind of depends on the scenario. So a, a good one to correlate back into our work is um, Google Copilot, or I'm sorry, not Google Copilot, um, to, um, GitHub. GitHub Copilot. Okay. Right. Most everybody on my team, we, we have a Copilot subscription. We built it into our IDEs on the software that we write and we're figuring out how to utilize it. And so basically I will sit down and use it to turn around and start writing code. So if I'm writing net new code, um, I'm gonna start typing it out and Google Copilot is gonna very quickly throw me a whole list of different options or one high level suggestion and then multiple sub ones to say, hey, here's here's the different ways you can write this code. And then I can pick and choose from that. I see. Um, and so for my example there to kind of go off what you were asking, is necessarily the one it gives me back isn't necessarily the one that I want because it doesn't always line up to the other code I'm building. So I want that cold code to be uniform to everything else. So how they do it this way might not be how we do it in the rest of the code base. But looking through the other five or six choices, one of those might be the right choices. Or I Frankenstein it and use three or four of them and put it together. Do you feel like that saves you time from the way you would do it before, just writing it without an assistant, uh, sort of looking over your shoulder and or prompting you to try a different direction? Um, Yeah, I don't know about saving time. I don't know if I want to get on on that bandwagon that we're going to save time here. Um, What I think we're going to do is we're going to make things easier for us to do, and then we make the logical choices off that. The other metric I was going to go for then if it's not saving time is more stable, more repeatable, that kind of thing, more reliable. And I think so. I I think, you know, if, if, if we give everybody a set of templates and we give everybody a repeatable, accurate um, suggestion back, that's a good baseline to start from. And the, the higher level and the, the more quality level baseline we start from the more quality output we're going to get. Now, it's the same thing as someone getting on to um, Stack Overflow and copy and pasting code and just dumping it into the code base. You, you still got to understand that. You still got to know what you're looking at. And you got to know how to integrate it into either your code base or 
you know, who's going to go on to Stack Overflow and copy a whole BGP config that was an example and dump it on a production router? You know, that doesn't make sense to any of us. We'll, we'll understand it. We'll fine tune it to what we want and we'll move forward with it. But still, given enough parameters, in theory, you could prompt the you could prompt chat GPT to generate exactly what you want if you, if you gave it enough detail. But, but here's another question for you, Ryan, in, in concerns about accuracy, I don't know that we need it to be a hundred percent accurate, but what would be nice is if we could somehow involve the chat GPT output into a pipeline where like, like an infrastructure as code pipeline, I mean, like any of us would, okay, we have some new artifact that we've created. We need to have that be tested. And that testing is then going to give us back a go, no go uh, with some errors and some information and some feedback. And then we make an adjustment and then we test it again. If we can include the AI in that feedback loop so that tests are run against the code that chat GPT or whatever the algorithm is generated, and then it could learn from the feedback if it failed, we could really get into automating, you know, more of this and actually get the human out of the loop a bit more, I would think. Eventually. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I think we'll get there someday. Um, I, I don't think it's close on the horizon. Um, and unless people are working on stuff that, you know, we don't know about or is not public. Um, you know, I, I think for the time being and for the next few years, at least, you know, the inaccuracy is going to be part of reality. Um, and exactly like you said, you hinted at it. This is not an end all beat all tool. It's not something that's going to completely replace one specific function or one specific type of job. It's going to be used inside that job as a specific tool in the workflows you use. And to me, that's where it's going to add the most value for right now and for the, the, the short term. Long term, we're, we're going to be improving the training. We're going to improve the models. Um, companies are going to figure out how to fine tune stuff towards their specific needs. We're going to get better workflows and we're going to simplify, you know, the, the end user experience more and more to get more and more accuracy. But it's going to take time. I don't know, Ryan, because I have seen a lot of social media influencers talk about how all software engineers are going to be out of a job in 2023. And I can make $10,000 a day using chat GPT from home. <laughs> Like every yeah. third YouTube video is sure. that one of those two claims. <laughs> you uh, obviously disagree with that. Yeah, I absolutely do. I, I, I don't, I, I think any software engineer out there, just like network engineers, we, you know, we, we see what it is and we see what it can do. And, and the reality is it's, it's way too far off to do that. Um, and it, it's, it's a waste away. And, and the best option it has is, is to help us in our workflows. And to me, that's where the most meaningful impact of this is, of, of everything that goes along with ChatGTP and AI systems in general. Um, <clears throat> I, so I'm somewhere in between Ryan and, and Phil, the two of you on this. Um, I do think it's going to happen quickly, but it is going to take, uh, it's going to take some amount of time, but I, I'm just so impressed with how far things have gotten. If we can get to that point where we can train the model effectively, getting the results out of it that we're looking for uh, is going to get easier. But with IT and when you're configuring devices, there's always context around that, that no model that is only thinking about a specific device or solving this very specific prompt is going to be able to give you. You may need to tweak your uh, 
OSPF configuration to accommodate what you've got uniquely set up in your environment or your BGP or your spanning tree or whatever it is. That's something that you can't, I don't know how you would train that uh, exactly. Yeah, I can come up with a generic spanning tree configuration that's very accurate, but still may need to be tweaked for your specific computing environment. But going back to the notion of it can help you with some things. So here's a tweet that I, I started up a, a, a bit of a tweet conversation about things that chat GPT can do with configs. And uh, Roddy at Packetstack responded back with uh, a prompt that he said, uh, he fed this into chat GPT, generate a Cisco interface configuration within the gigabit ethernet zero slash zero to gigabit ethernet zero slash 10 range with slash 24 IP addresses from the 192.168.0.0 slash 16 range. And he got exactly that interface gigabit zero zero IP address 192.168.0.1.255.255.255.0 right down the line through 10 gigabit ethernet interfaces with iterating IP addresses, all with the correct mask and so on. Now, that's something you might have written if you were automating it in some kind of a for loop or something like that to, to overcome some sort of uh, tedious task like that that you need to do. ChatGPT did it with you know, one prompt. That extrapolated across a bunch of tedious tasks in the world of configuration that we might need to do as networkers. And yeah, it didn't write your entire OSPF domain, but you did get something tedious and boring done. And presumably it did something so specific like that, error-free. We didn't have to worry about it too much. That's valuable. And and pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, that's really cool. Because uh, that's um, when I've been putting in things like that, as far as whether it's Cisco or Juniper or whatever, but networking scenarios the stuff I get back is awesome, relatively accurate, accurate enough where I'm like, yeah, I, I would run with this and then, you know, tweak it. Where I've seen the issues is when you get outside the realm of, uh, of, of technology and specifically networking and software and, and you know, ask, uh, asking it to write something. And, and of course, it sounds kind of robotic because it's not a person. But I have been very impressed when you're talking specifically about technology and specifically mm -hmm. about networking configuration. It's, it's been really, really good. Um, I mean, it's not something I would rely on as, as say, we don't need a network engineer. We're just going to ask it this and then copy and paste it in. Still needs somebody to rack servers and rack routers and switches too, right? Now, Phil, I, that, that is a great point that you brought up about once you get outside of the technology domain, what do you get? So I got two examples here of where chat GPT from an answer perspective failed. It gave some... It gave some data that sounded good, but was was actually incorrect. One was in the realm of knitting. My wife is a great knitter. And I gave a, a prompt to ChatGPT saying, hey, if I've knitted cuffs that are too wide, how could, I, how could I solve this problem? And the answers it gave back sounded good. But when I ran them by my wife, she's like, actually, what just happened there is, yeah, you made the cuff shorter, but you knit the sleeve closed. There's no, there's no oh. sleeve you can put your hand through now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and then in another, I'm a I'm a hiker in the White Mountains, and I asked it how to get to the top of Mount Liberty, which is a very popular peak in Franconia Notch State Park. It gave me back trails and distances and all that, and I know the area very well. And they were all kind of right, but mostly wrong. You would definitely not want to rely on that information as a hiker. You'd get lost or look at a map and go, this doesn't make sense. So yeah, yeah, there are concerns there. So I can ask it about how to, what, what is, what is a carbureted engine? Oh, and it'll give me this, 
this answer about how, oh, the carburetor mixes the fuel in the air and injects it into the cylinders. And this is how, and that's different from fuel injection and electronic fuel injection. But then I say, how does it feel like to drive a 1971 Mustang carburetor? <laughs> and it's just like, it feels good. And it doesn't really have an answer for that because there's nothing beyond just collecting information that's out there and then spinning it back. But it does work for our little sliver of the world here in networking pretty well, doesn't it? Uh, so yeah, maybe it doesn't work for writing the next great American novel, okay, or for uh, emulating a, a beautiful Shakespearean sonnet, but but, uh, but it, it does work pretty well for, for technology, I'm finding so far. So how do you guys then see this being delivered to the end user? Would I, is this, you know, would Cisco license technology from OpenAI and put it in their NMS? Would an independent NMS vendor do it? Would I just license it, my, my own shop, license something from OpenAI? How, does, how, do, how do you see this being you know, presented to an end user to be consumed? So to kind of roll up my response to, to what Ethan and, and Phil were talking about, and then to kind of somewhat answer your question if I get there. So I was lucky enough with the, the AI art and the image generation stuff to kind of see it land and become super popular and kind of be involved with that and being involved on the various forums and Discord channels and Slack channels. And, you know, it kind of started off as this... Um, this novelty tool where everybody and their dog went out there and created these images and posted them on social media or wherever. And the, the image, the images were relatively um, amateurish. Um, they were also kind of psychedelic and not accurate. Um, and this kind of was what happened for a little while. And then over time you saw those improve. And then the first level of improvement was everybody upskilling in being able to write prompts. But then all of a sudden you started seeing images come in that were spectacular. And it was like, whoa, how are you doing that? And then people would even be like, I took the exact same prompt you wrote and I pasted it into the exact same tool and I got a completely different image. Mine looks like absolute dog turds and <laughs> yours looks amazing. How, how did that happen? And so with this started coming the discussion with people outlining their workflows and to me, why I'm bringing this up is I think workflows is absolutely critical to how we'll use this in the future. Um, they would explain, well, the, 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 the tool that I'm using would generate probably 50 to 7,500, however many images off the prompt I gave. I would then go through all those images. I would pick the best one I liked, and then I would start the process over. Start with this image and rebuild it. And they would do that two or three times until they got to an image that they liked, and then that's what they would post. And then the next step was OpenAI introduced um, in painting where you could actually pick certain objects of an image and have AI tweak it. Um, and then out painting where they could actually add outwards of the image outside of the border that was originally generated. So then what people started doing was adding into that workflow where they would take those images after they went through four or five processes over and over, and then they would pick certain sections like this hand doesn't look right, or this ear kind of doesn't do something that it should be doing or something. And they would sit there and they would tweak. And then as you started seeing these images improve, people would talk about how their process to generate these images would take one, two days, or even a week to get to a final product. And so what we would see is you could very quickly tell the professional 
artists and how they dug into their workflows and improved them and perfected them, how their images came out versus amateurs like myself. Hmm. So there's still, I think that's very critical. And for me, it was eye opening because it was like, this isn't just going to be push a button and and get these amazing results. You're going to put it in there. And it's kind of like what you brought up um, a little earlier that you, you build out a very well-crafted prompt. You build out one from your industry experience. You know exactly what needs to go where and you build it out. Now, if it needs more tweaking, you revise the process and you do it again, or you add other tools in there, okay? Just because you're using AI arts or you're using one of these doesn't mean you can't use Photoshop. You can add Photoshop into the process. Same thing with network engineers. So you're saying there's still a role, one, for expertise and knowledge, two, for, I guess, almost, I don't know if we can apply this necessarily to configurations, but a sense of aesthetics? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, maybe more than aesthetics would be the creative element of, of how can I make this work uh, in, a, in a particular workflow, <clears throat> in a particular environment, when maybe QoS, for example, on, on links has, is tied to a business intent, which is ultimately tied to like the value of one closet versus a different network closet, which maybe can't be quantified in math necessarily, or maybe you can. But what Ryan, what you're talking about there and the um, amount of effort in the workflows to get there is that's true, but there's an entire workflow even that precedes this. Think about just the collection of the enormous amount of data, right? How do you ingest that? How do you check its accuracy? So there's a there's a workflow there. And then if it's from my network collecting that information, how are we going to do that? Which information? How do we check that? Is it is it uh, continual or, or is it, you know, how do we do that? Um, and then there's also the pre-processing that occurs, which is just statistical analysis. I say just with air quotes that you can't see, but there's <laughs> math that happens to uh, like scaling and normalization and standardization. So if you're familiar with machine learning, how do you compare data points that are completely different scales? I have millions of packets per second, and then I have a percentage if you're talking about like flow data. You can't, you can't just compare those. You need to put them on a zero to one scale. So there's a tremendous amount of effort just to get to that part that Ryan just talked about. How do you package that and then put a license on it? That, that's a tough question because there, that is a, a, a huge endeavor. And in, in therein, every, uh, therein lies a potential for mistakes everywhere, every, every one of those steps. Uh, so I really liked how you talk about the, the creative element that's still there with an artist that's manipulating the system to get the result they want, Ryan. That's, that's to me... Yeah. They're using it like an artist's paintbrush. And, and everything y'all brought up there, you know, everything you brought up, Phil, and the the, the whole workflows and, and all this data flying around and validation and all that stuff. We've already kind of been doing this in, a, in another realm of our industry that got a pretty big buzzword, mm-hmm. too. Um, you know, this, this is exactly what a CICD pipeline does for you. Um, it just does it at a more predictable level. If, if you want to say it that, you know, you're going to get predictable outputs, you're going to get predictable inputs, things like that. Um, so it, it's basically taken what we know and what we've learned in that aspect and, and integrating this in there. And that's where you're going to get a ton of value out of it. Um, and then of course, you know, testing this is just actually absolutely scares the crap out of me, but yeah. <laughs> I guess my, uh, scary. And, and so, so Drew, to, to, to go back and answer your question there from, from my opinion, 
I, I, I very strongly hold the opinion that no one's ever going to be able to sell you a CI/CD pipeline, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got to build that yourself because mm-hmm. it is tailored towards your specific company and exactly what you need in your, your objectives. No company is going to be able to sell that to you. So, so in that realm and in that regard, you know, it's going to be up to the individual businesses to build that and to integrate it into their workflows. Right. But I'm not going to build, you know, a, a bunch of racks of compute to do the statistical analysis on all my configs and stuff to get that output. I'm going to buy that from somebody else. I'm going to license that from somebody. Sure. Sure. I guess and that makes sense. Yeah. That's more what I was thinking. Like who's, who, who's going to win there or how's it going to be delivered? And I mean, I guess in some ways we're seeing it like folks like Juniper are talking all the time about, you know, how they use AI and ML, particularly uh, on the wireless side of the house. Um, and a lot of that relies on just analyzing gobs and gobs data they get from their customers. Yeah. And it's not just Juniper. I mean, there's a lot of companies that do it. And and with the um, relative ease of spinning up new resources and the, and the rel- again, relative low cost of being able to uh, m- calculate these things on huge data sets, um, I, I don't... I don't foresee it being this thing that we can just never achieve. I mean, I, I think that there are going to be some companies that are able to 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 ship it and sell it. Now, when I say ship it and sell it, it's going to be something that they offer as a service, of course. And then you have hooks into your own network and they suck that data in. And then you can query your network and do all those cool things. Um, so I, I absolutely see that as a possibility in the not too distant future. How, how it specifically is licensed, you know, with this and that, I don't know. But I, I, I think it's it's not far-fetched at all. The other thing I wonder is how it's going to be marketed in that, you know, the, the short-sighted CIO who wants to cut costs, so is looking to cut headcount and is like, well, we just bought AI, so what do I need you guys for? It, anything that I'm kind of seeing out there right now, um, when it comes to like dev tools in that industry or, you know, the the integrations or, you know, people using it here or there, the the actual compute and the GPUs and everything you're going to do here, you know, it, it seems like everybody's building that either as a SaaS product or a cloud-based mm-hmm. application yeah. um, to, to, to centralize that, that type of, that type of compute in the cloud. Um, now, you know, just like anything else though, I don't think it's, it's all exclusive to the cloud for organizations that it makes sense where you need a massive amount of compute consistently to do the stuff you're doing, then you bring that on-prem to do. I want to drill into a few practical questions as we close out this podcast here. One is about use cases. And there's one that we've we've been talking about here, that, that starting point. Hey, chat GPT, and then you feed it a prompt and it spits back some code at you. It's not going to be 100% accurate, but it's a place to start. You can refine it from there and get to the result you want. Uh, Ryan, g- give us some other potential use cases, whether they're real today or, or could be real in the... Uh, the near future uh, with with AI and this technology. Sure, and and so the areas that I've actually been using it in my day to day job, um, like I mentioned, building out documentation, um, having it actually sort through code and either build out you know API documentation or build out actual documentation of the application. What's um, that that's a very heavy like? space. So it's not one of those you would necessarily prompt um, the the because the the prompts and and not Chat GTP you would you would use the Open API um, framework itself directly, but you would have it sourced through all you you would input all your code and then you would say hey build the documentation on this. So the the prompt would be relatively simple and from what I understand 
it's it's all the logic to get in there and find it and then work through it and then build out the documentation. Um, that's one area that I see there's a there's a ton of value and there's a ton of work actually happening right now. You can find a lot of projects out there that are that are working through like Python doc strings to to actually generate stuff or code to, you know, you can even do it in chat GTP or I think the the open API playground does a better job with one of the codex um, models where you can say, hey, what does this code do? And it comes back and gives you actual real real language speak of, hey, this this code does this, 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 and this. Um, to me, that's a big one. I've done that. Um, like I mentioned a little earlier, I've actually had it do code generation for me so it can do the heavy lifting and I can tweak that and work through you know, how I'm going to build out what I'm going to build. Um, a lot of replies, both in social media, in Slack, internal email, I will write something out and then I'll go to chat GTP and have it write it out as well and see which one did better. And usually with how horrible I am at spelling, it does better than I do. <laughs> so th that's, that's a quick win right there. Or even just start off if you don't have time to respond to somebody quickly on something that's lower priority, see what chat GPT can do. And there's even plugins now for like Gmail and other mail applications that'll have it write stuff for you. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the documentation stuff. Troubleshooting, I, I think, is going to be an interesting one to come in the future. Um, how to go about that, though, I'm not sure. One that uh, I don't know who wrote this in the show notes, Ryan, if it was you or Phil or Drew, but um, th there was the question posed, could this lead to what we all thought software-defined networking, SDN, was going to be? Any thoughts on that? What was software defined networking supposed to be? Right. Oh boy. <laughs> right. Magic. <laughs> I, I, I just remember it was supposed to make me coffee and it never made me coffee. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I wrote that question in there, Ethan. And the reason is because I, this idea of being able to literally not figuratively talk to my network. And I say that in jest, right? But I'm able to interface with my network in such a way where I can speak to it in human language and get responses and figure out problems. Yes, I get it. The control plane and the hardware separate and the, you know, where does that, okay, I get it. That's SDN and everybody's different definition. And then of course we got into intent-based networking. Remember that? IBN and mm -hmm. being able to just declare your intent and the network does what it's supposed to do and auto remediation and all these pie in the sky ideas. And I almost feel like, are we inching closer to that actually right now? Because I almost feel like we are. And if we are, that's awesome. And I want, I want to license it right now. Yeah, and Ryan, and, and, I can't think of anybody more appropriate to answer that question than you, considering what you do for a living. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree, you know, SDN was our, you know, our attempt number one or our beta version and it, it did what it did. And, you know, intent based networking came around and it kind of gave us a different view of how we're approaching, how we should be approaching this, you know, and that inched us forward. And I think moving with something that can do a better job of natural language processing like this, you know, that, that helps us move that much more forward as well with, with where we're trying to get with managing infrastructure. Yeah. So, and, and that brings up for me another one that I, I, I forgot to mention that is, is a pretty low-hanging fruit right now to get involved with. And, and that's actually, you know, chat ops. Um, having an application either in Slack or even in, built into your 
your product where you you have a chat window where seriously Clippy comes up, but Clippy's now attached to an AI and you you ask it questions and it responds to you or you ask it to do something and it can very quickly translate that and do work for you. So the natural learning, natural language processing there can be a lot better than what it is without it. So all that mockery we did of Clippy back in the 90s, it's going to come back and bite us when Clippy takes over <laughs> and, and kills us all. <laughs> I, I'm waiting to see someone actually build it. I, I think any day now, someone's going to build Clippy with the AI. I swear they will. <laughs> um, there's plenty of blogs out there where people take like their documents, um, their internal documents are kind of like I mentioned earlier, they're, they're vendor documents and they, they drop them into a model. They... Um, they fine tune a model with them and then that's that's how they do their their chat bot or whatever so there's there's decent number of blogs of people who talk you know in detail about how to do it so we we talked about a few different real life uh, use cases or ways that engineers can use it today or in the near future really in the next couple iterations maybe right auto documentation uh you talked about um being able to to drop Config, uh, rather code into it and then getting uh, basically, you know, explanation of what that code does back, uh, code refactoring, all that kind of stuff. So really useful stuff. But if you'll humor me for just a moment, uh, I have to bring up Star Trek because it's what I do. Um, if, if you remember Lieutenant Jordy LaForge on the Enterprise, he talked through problems, engineering problems with the computer, right? Computer didn't, it wasn't sentient except for that one episode where it had like a baby or something. I don't know. But it ultimately was a computer that he talked to that had insight that it was able to glean presumably from an incredible amount of math and compute resources on the enterprise somewhere um, and work through an engineering problem. And then he would kind of like I always envision intent-based networking and SD and all that stuff. He would just say reroute power from here to here. And it knew how to do that. That uh is so cool and i kind of smell this in in this entire conversation I, I know that's not what we're doing now we talked about some of the real practical benefits that an engineer can have today 2023 2024 but i feel like that's that's where i want to get to guys I, I don't know what to say that's where i want to get to as a networking professional is to be able to interact with my network like that and and this is a, on on that road am i completely wrong or just <laughs> false hope no, I, I think that's that's realistic, and I, I think it's it's even doable now. Um, it's just a matter of you know the resources and and the time to to fine tune the models with with the highly accurate you know details. So if if you're saying reroute power from here to here, you know what what does that translate to in network engineer speak, and then what does that translate to in configuration? Right, and when you can correlate that in the fine tuning, and and you can do an accurate job of that, and then test and validate, you know, that's that's totally doable with the technology we have now. It, it, it's the test and validate part that gets sketchy in my mind. In that, if you say reroute power or reroute traffic uh, across some other part of the network, you need to understand the implications of what rerouting it is, what that really means. There could be all these different parameters that could govern that rerouting request, whether that's performance or whether, well, things like we deal with with, with SD-WAN today, you build an SLA around the application. And so if it's going to reroute it to meet that SLA, you've already built within that SLA all of the criteria around what rerouting might mean and why you'd want to do it. 
uh, you could say reroute, and it could be like uh, something I dealt with almost 20 years ago. Rerouting would happen on some ISDN line, which would pop up and performers would go in the tank. And the way OSPF was designed, it would converge everything onto that uh, ISDN line and performance for the whole company would suffer and so on. You don't want the AI to do that sort of rerouting. It wants you. My point is you need to have all of this context and intelligence around that rerouting request that we would expect it to have, which goes back to modeling. And does it understand when you prompt it in this way, all of the things that should be taken into consideration to give you the answer that you're looking for. And which I feel like we've gone full circle here because in the beginning of this, we were like, well, what does intelligence really mean? And that's kind of what we're getting at. And it's an important question to answer and understand. Yeah. And, and I think where you're getting at right there, that's, you know, that's, that's what we face with, you know, our, our CD systems, our continuous delivery with network automation. Um, and it falls into that same realm. You just have now a different integration with, with whatever your natural language processor is um, that takes your speak, um, translates that into it and then pushes it through that workflow. You know, maybe your workflow is critical enough where before it even gets pushed to production, it fully um, tests everything on a staging environment before it turns around and pushes it to a prod environment. Um, maybe it does need to go through a ticketing system like ServiceNow to take that, push it up through a ticket, and then you get like an architect or an engineer to approve it before that could happen. Or maybe it gets enough testing and validation done up front that there's a handful of things that we can trust to just happen when you ask for it. That's again. That's one of those. That's 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 up to the user, and it's up to the company of of how far you can go with that, or want to go with that. And ultimately, we're not talking about replacing software engineers. Then we're talking about, or network engineers for that matter, but augmenting them to do their job better, especially in the context of the growing complexity and all that that we have today. But but again, yeah. augmenting an engineer so they can find solutions faster so they can deploy faster or whatever it is or or more accurately i think drew mentioned design and and uh, uh and that kind of writing thing. code yeah. is, is not a skill i mean it is but it's not the thing the thing is knowing what it is you're trying to do at a high level what that design and architecture is and then you know you got to write the code to bring that to reality but i'd rather leave the the tedious work of writing an error-free configuration off to some you know, artificial intelligence that could just do it for me yep. if it understood enough contextually what I was asking it for. I, that would just free me up to work on other stuff. I, but I think a, a, a bigger point here, we're never going to get the humans out of the loop. You're never going to reduce that headcount sea level until we have general purpose artificial intelligence. And that seems to be something that, that's not part of this conversation. We are not talking about general purpose artificial intelligence at all. We're talking about a model trained in doing predictive analytics to figure out, ah, I should probably say this based on history of what it's learned. That's very far from general purpose intelligence. Uh, and until then, yeah, I, don't, I don't see how you replace anybody. Agree 100%. Was that a mic drop? Yeah. Do we do we stop here? Maybe we stop here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Let's that go around the table then. A little vote for uh, humanity. <laughs> so this feels like this is a super ultra advanced autocorrect or grammarly for me as an engineer. I, yeah. You know, it's checking my stuff. I'm sanity check and maybe I throw my code or it checks my code or whatever. It's not doing my job. It's helping me do it better. 
Well, Phil, if people yep. want to follow you on the internet uh, with your excellent networking memes and uh, soon to be your very best chat GPT prompts for networking configurations, uh, how do they follow you? Well, I'm still very active on Twitter. It's network underscore Phil. Search my name on LinkedIn and the blog is networkphil.com. And I wasn't kidding about the networking memes yet, man. You are a machine with those and I get lots of <laughs>, laughs and smiles from them. Thank you for I doing those. It. Yeah. And uh, Ryan, uh, all of this, this whole show is, uh, it's basically your fault, man. So thank you for all your work, your research, and your willingness <laughs> to share. And uh, how do people follow you on the internet? Yeah, Twitter's, Twitter's a great place to start. Um, I'm at that one guy 15, I believe it's underscore 15 at the end. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Those are probably the two places I'm the most frequent. Um, I'm, I'm pretty passive on Reddit. Um, but I do spend a lot of time digging through Reddit as well. Um, I'm on a number of Slack channels that I'm very inactive in, but I'm there as well. You're welcome to reach out to me in any of those places. Um, I'll do my best not to have chat GTP respond to you. <laughs> Could we even tell? On the, uh... Does it matter? <laughs> do what? Right. Could we even tell if it was chat GPT? <laughs> if, if it's spelled correctly, then most likely it's chat GTP. <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan is on the Packet Pushers Slack channel, which if you didn't know, we have one of those, packetpushers.net slash Slack. You can sign up for free. And uh, I'm on there, Drew's on there, et cetera. Uh, Drew, normally we don't talk about ourselves and how to follow us as individuals, but uh, but let's break tradition here for one episode and tell people how they can follow you on the internet. Uh, on Twitter, Drew underscore CM. Uh, same thing on Mastodon. I'm on the Mastodon social instance. If you want to go check that out, uh, lots of interesting people showing up there as well. And I co-host the Network Break podcast, which comes out weekly on the Backpushers. I've been Ethan Banks at EC Banks. You can follow me on Twitter there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect and uh, all that good stuff. And of course, I'm here almost every week on the Heavy Networking Podcast and on Day 2 Cloud that I co-host with Ned Bellavance. I think the most appropriate way to end the show would be to read the outro that I asked Jack GPT to write for me. So here we go. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Packet Pushers Heavy Networking Podcast, where we delved into the world of artificial intelligence and its growing presence in the field of networking. We hope that you now have a greater appreciation for the capabilities and potential of AI in networking, as well as an understanding of its limitations. As always, we encourage you to continue the conversation on our community forums and to stay up to date on the latest advancements in the industry. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.